following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So we're going to be looking uh, this morning at Matthew chapter 26. If you want to follow along as I read Matthew 26 verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Um, <clears throat> as Jesus uh, prays in Gethsemane and wrestles with God in Gethsemane, it's a great reminder that life is not always easy. Uh, life doesn't always go the way we want. And uh, oftentimes sadness and sorrow and even depression will, will cross our path. And uh, it's a very fortunate person who goes through their whole life and never has to deal with hard things in their life. And certainly we, we all will at some time, or we, maybe we are now. And the reality is we know that it's not, it's not fun, it's not enjoyable, right? Nobody uh, hopes for hardship or hopes for difficulties, right? Nobody says, hey, I, my life is just too full of joy, I wish things would go wrong, right? It doesn't work that way. We want, uh, we want, we want joy, we want life to go well. But, but hard things come, sickness, struggles, conflict, uh, death. Uh, these hardships find us. And oftentimes it can leave us feeling overwhelmed and wiped out. Uh, it can leave us feeling fearful or anxious or depressed or despondent. And, and Jesus understands, right? And this story, this passage is a great reminder of um, what it meant for Jesus to identify with our pain and our weakness, right? Uh, Hebrews 4.15 reminds us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And at Gethsemane, Jesus really sinks into the, the, the deepest level of sorrow and grief and, and turmoil. And uh, it's a great reminder that Jesus can identify with us when we go through struggles, right? He, he knows what it's like. And he uh, sympathizes. He has empathy with us in our weakness. Um, 
And here, as Jesus is in the garden, he uh, is, of course, the cross is now right at hand, right? And he knows what's about to unfold. And as he has been maybe busy with other things, all of a sudden now there's some space where he can really think about the cross. And it really does overwhelm him. Right? He is overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. Um, and, and he was tempted. But there was a temptation that came with this, and we'll talk about that. A very real temptation to turn away from the cross. Uh, so when we face really hard things, how do we normally uh, deal with it? Like when hard things come along, uh, typically human beings as a whole group of people, uh, maybe not you individually, but uh, there's, there's typically one of three ways that we deal with hard things. The first is uh, just basically avoidance and denial. Right? How many like that one? This is my favorite. This is my plan of choice. You know, just pretend like everything's going to be okay, right? Uh, just don't think about it. Pretend life's going to continue on and be good, and don't really give much thought to what's coming or what's happening around us. Uh, but the, the problem with this, when we just avoid the problem or deny that what's going on, it leaves us very unprepared for when the moment comes, right? And we're caught off guard, and it's, it actually makes things, makes things worse. Uh, but, but for the moment, it's easier just to avoid it, right? Uh, another uh, option uh, is a fight or flight, kind of two things we could do. One is to fight, fight back. And when things get rough or things we, we feel threatened or at risk, we, we, we go into fight mode. And we find a way to conquer it, to overcome it, to beat it, to defeat it uh, by somehow outpowering, uh, over, overcoming or outsmarting it, right? So that would be one option. The other is, to, is, to, is flight, fight or flight. Run for your life, right? Just get out of there, get away from it, run away. Uh, which I also happen to like this option as well. Anybody up for this one? Just run away. Go to the beach, find a deserted desert, get away from the problems, also uh, an option for us. And what's interesting is, is this, as the cross kind of unfolds, you see the disciples all uh, doing all of these three steps, Right? First, they're in the garden, and uh, they're all asleep, right? Why are they asleep? Well, they're not asleep because they're feeling the anxiety and tension of the moment, right? They're not awake with Jesus, feeling what's coming. Instead, they're, they're like, chill, right? They're, it's time to sleep. They're, they're laid back. Why could they be so laid back when their best friend is about to be crucified on the cross? Where clearly they're uh, denying what's about to happen. And, they, and sleep is a great avoidance tactic, right? Uh, when all your troubles get bad enough, just put yourself to sleep. Right? It's a great way to avoid it. And that's what they do, right? They're avoiding the reality that's pressing in on them. Uh, then when Jesus wakes them up and says, no, it's, the time's here, um, uh, Peter uh, draws his sword to fight, right? And he chops off some guy's ear, and, and Jesus says, uh, put the sword away, <laughs> Put the sword down and step away from your weapon, right? This is not the plan of God, right? So when that option is taken away by Jesus, then what do they do? Well, they all run. They all run away, right? So they're great examples of what not to do. But what's interesting is Jesus does not deal with uh, this crisis, this enormous crisis of his heart and soul, with any of those options. right? He's not avoiding it. He's not denying what's about to happen. He's not trying to fight back, and he's certainly uh, not running away. Although he's wrestling with some of those things, right? He is wrestling with the urge to do just that, to run away from the cross. 
but that's not what he does, and that's not how he handles it. So Jesus is a great example for us of how we can deal with these crises in our life, how we can deal with the sorrow and depression and, and uh, despair that sometimes assails us and comes over us. Uh, so let's look at what Jesus, how Jesus deals with his own grief and sorrow uh, of soul. Um, uh, first of all, we see this picture really describing the depth of grief or sorrow that Jesus is experiencing. Verse 36 again, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Right? Um, Gethsemane, uh, the word Gethsemane means olive press. And so this is the place of the olive press. And uh, uh, I think John calls it a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, or it's a place, it's a space. And, and if you've been to Jerusalem or that region, you know that Jerusalem kind of sits on a hill. On one side there's this valley, and on the other side is another hill, or they call a mountain. I'm from Colorado. It's a small hill, right? Um, this hill... And so he's, uh, he's on this hillside, uh, Mount of Olives, and it's covered with olive trees. And uh, this olive press sits probably towards the lower part of the mountain where they would bring the olives and press them into olive oil. And it provided a quiet space. It was still close to Jerusalem, which was a requirement for Passover to stay within the precinct of Jerusalem. But it was a place where Jesus could get away from the crowds and the noise. And in the quiet of that moment... Like up to this point, he's been teaching, he's been encouraging the disciples, he's been giving them his final instructions, and his mind has been really occupied with the task of preparing the disciples for his departure. This last chance to teach them. But now all of a sudden there's this quiet, and there's some space, and, and the reality of what's coming just, just hits Jesus like a wave, comes crashing on him. And, and he suddenly feels this great sorrow, um, uh, and we, we know that, that the, the Gethsemane was, was uh, not a place he went to run away. Um, he, he apparently went here all the time because Judas knew where to find him. He knew he would be here. So this was a, a place that Jesus often went to to reflect and to be with his disciples and to have some quiet. Um, uh, so he wasn't, he wasn't running away to the garden to hide from the, the, the soldiers. Uh, in fact, he went to the place where he knew Judas would find him, right? So he's, he's not yet running away, but he's feeling this pressure. He's feeling this great sorrow. And he describes it as being a sorrow to the point of death. In other words, it was a sorrow so great, so painful, so black, that Jesus felt like it would kill him. Right? Felt like it would just suffocate his life. Um, have you ever felt that kind of sorrow? Have you ever felt that kind of darkness or blackness of heart and soul? Uh, certainly Jesus did. Uh, and it was overwhelming him. Right? It was overwhelming him. Uh, and the question is, why was he so overwhelmed? Right? Why, why was this such a, uh, a huge weight of sorrow and grief? Well, of course, uh, we would say, well, you know, dying... <laughs> Uh, is not is not fun, right? And I, I've never died, um, and I've never actually even been like that close to death. And some some of you may have, some of you may have experienced health problems where you really thought you were going to die, and so you may know a little more what that's like. Um, certainly, it's not fun, 
and it's not easy. And so, um, is Jesus here feeling kind of the normal sense of, of losing life, right? That his life is about to end and feeling overwhelmed with the truth and reality of that. Is that what's going on here? Uh, on top of that, uh, the, the cross was arguably uh, the most painful and agonizing way to, to die that's ever been devised. It was intentionally uh, created and designed to be as slow a death as possible. Right? So it was, it was torture. It was agonizing. And certainly as he contemplated the physical pain that was about to be brought on him, and not just the cross, but the beatings and the humiliation that we'll, we'll talk about going through this passage, uh, was that what was troubling him so much? Was that what was causing this great anxiety, uh, the torment of the cross? Or was there something more to his sorrow and his death? Uh, well, I believe that those things were part of it for sure, but I think there's more going on here than just those things. Um, J.C. Ryle, a commentator, Bible scholar who lived about 100 years ago, well, more than 100 years ago, writes this. He says, thousands have endured the most agonizing sufferings of the body and died without a groan. And so, no doubt, might our Lord. But the real weight that bowed down the heart of Jesus was the weight of the sin of the world, which seems to have now pressed down on him with a particular and peculiar force. It was the burden of our guilt imputed to him which was now laid on him, how great that burden must have been. No heart of man can conceive. See, it's important to understand as Jesus goes to the cross, he's not just dying a painful death. He's not just dying a, a very torturous, horrible death, uh, which those things were true. But Jesus is dying a sacrificial death. Right? Jesus is dying a unique death that was, that was like no other. Right? No one died the death that Jesus died. Nobody experienced uh, what he was about to experience, not only because of the tremendous physical suffering of the crucifixion and not only because of the emotional weight that went with the shame and humiliation of it, but more so because of the extreme emotional and spiritual suffering of being... Um, the sacrifice for sin, right? Uh, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in, in Romans that the wages of sin is death, right? The ultimate consequence and price of our sin is, is death. And that death is not just physical. Uh, that's part of it. And that certainly our bodies are separated from life. Our soul is separated from our body in death. But the death that he's talking about when he says the wages of sin is is death is much bigger, much greater. It is an ultimate kind of death which is spiritual, which separates us from God, which really cuts us off from everything that life is, and that puts us in a state of continual death. Um, Now, we don't know what all of that means. We don't know really, uh, really the consequences of sin, but, but we can see some of it, some of, the, some of what that looks like when we look at the world around us, right? Uh, the wages of sin is death. We, we see that all around us, where there is suffering and there is hurt and there is conflict and people can't get along and there is brokenness, right? That's the wages of sin. 
Uh, and, you know, I don't know how the world misses this. I don't know how people don't see this, but you look around, and sin doesn't bring people together in harmony and peace, right? Right? Sin is not our selfishness and our pride and our ego and our self-will is not causing people to love each other more and enjoy each other more, right? No, it causes us to hate people and to, to have strife and conflict and brokenness in marriages and in organizations and business and in relationships, in society. Right? We see a world that's being ripped apart. And what is the cause of that? God's love and goodness? <laughs> no. Right? It is sin. It is the consequences of sin that bring destruction every, to everything it touches. Right? Everything it touches, it destroys and breaks. And the ultimate, that, the ultimate destruction of that is the very destruction of life itself. The wages of sin is death. And you see Jesus uh, in the garden realized that he was going to the cross not just to die this painful death, but to pay the wages of sin. Right? To take on himself everything that death meant. Everything that the consequences of sin meant. Right? Uh, as he would experience... Uh, God's wrath and judgment over sin. Right? Uh, he would take on himself our guilt, uh, all the sorrow and grief and brokenness of humanity. He was about to take on himself uh, and to bear the full punishment for that brokenness and that guilt through his death. Right? Um, and so... So it was a huge weight, right? One that we really can't imagine because we really can't fathom all that that means. We really don't know. Uh, But Jesus knew, and he knew it was coming, and it caused him extreme sorrow. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you're feeling sad, if you're feeling depressed, if you're feeling down, like, like there's no hope, believe me, Jesus knows what you feel and experience. Like he knows what it feels like, what that hurt is. He knows what it feels like to have a sorrow so great you think it will kill you. Right? Um, and in the midst of this, Jesus in humanity was, was very much tempted to take a different path. Right? He, there was a temp, very real temptation for Jesus there, a very real urge and desire to turn away from the cross. To say, why would I do this? Why, why would I bring on myself this horror? Now, <clears throat> how he was tempted and did not sin is a super complicated question. Right? And so after the service, if you have questions about that, talk to Shine. He would love to talk to you about how... Raise your hand, Shine. And he would love to explain to you <clears throat> uh, how Jesus was tempted and did not sin. Right? Or Mike's back there. Mike, he's all over that. Uh, that's a hard question, and, and it, it could take me many a long, long time to try to unravel that. We're not going to go there this morning. Um, uh, but, but we need to know that, that his struggle was very real. And it was very real in, in his humanity. He was fully God, fully man. And in the fully human part of Jesus, there was this wrestling. There was this thought of why... Do I have to go to the cross? Right? Uh, 
Why can't there be another way? Now, now we, we can't understand really everything that, that Jesus understood about death. It's too big to understand the wages of sin. We can't really appreciate how dark it was. But we can experience something of, of the horror of it by just looking at Jesus' face. Have you ever had this experience where you were with someone who got a phone call with really, really bad news, right? And you can't hear what's on the other end of the phone conversation, but just reading their face, you know it's bad, right? You just see the look and the, the, the blood drain out of their face and the pain uh, appear as they hear these words. And you don't know what it's about, but you know it's bad, right? And what we see here is, is we, don't, we don't know what Jesus is about to experience. We can't really understand why it's so bad or the depth of it all. But we get a glimpse of, of its horror in the face of Jesus as he sees what's coming. Right? And he is overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. Um, so how does Jesus deal with this temptation? How does he deal with the, the sorrow? Right? How does he handle this huge life crisis? Uh, well, thankfully, he does overcome both temptation and, and, and potential failure. And so I want to look at some, some, some things that Jesus did, uh, not only to see how he handled it, but as an example for us. Right? So this is how we also ought to handle these hard things that come into our life. Uh, first off, verse 38, Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Right, so he's in Gethsemane, this, this space with this olive press, and he leaves uh, what would be now 11 of the disciples. He takes three, so three minutes, so it would be eight. He leaves eight. I have to do the math first. He leaves eight there, and he goes a little bit farther, uh, separated from them with three more, Peter, James, and John. And he asks him, he says, would you, would you wait with me? Would you sit with me? Would you watch with me? Uh, but, but not actually with him, right? And, and Jesus really, what I think, um, moves into what I call solitude and community. Right? He has to do something that he alone can do. Right? He's not asking Peter, James, and John to give him advice. He's not seeking their counsel. He's not asking them to fix their problem. What Jesus needs to do, he needs to do alone. But not alone in the sense of isolation. Right? There, you can be alone and isolated, or you can be alone in community. Right? And what Jesus is looking for is the comfort of friends to be alone with. Right? Right? He's not isolating himself. He's not cutting himself off from his support group and from people who could be there with him. He says, would you sit and watch with me while I go pray? Right? Very powerful. Uh, there, there is great comfort in not facing your problems all alone. Um, even if your friends can't solve your problems, even if they, uh, and you probably don't want their bad advice, right? Uh, please don't give advice. Just, but, but there's something about being with someone in that time of crisis and hurt, right? Of just being a presence, of being a friend who's alongside them. And that's what Jesus is looking for. Uh, of course, he doesn't get it. His friends turn out to be not a very comforting presence because they just fall asleep. And Peter, who just... <clears throat> just an hour earlier, said, Jesus, I will go with you to the death. I will never leave you and forsake you. Leaves him by slipping off into la-la land, into dreamland, right? 
And even here, Peter can't really stay with Jesus when Jesus desperately needs him. And he really uh, fails his friend. Jesus uh, ultimately will have to suffer the, the cross all alone. And that was part of it. right? It was intentional. Because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is being isolated from even the comfort of friends. That's what sin does. And Jesus had to walk into the full effect and impact of sin. So it was necessary that Jesus be abandoned. It was necessary that he go to the cross all alone in absolute isolation. Ultimately, we will see even from his Father in heaven for a moment. Right? But praise God, we don't have to be isolated in our suffering. Right? We don't have to go there. Uh, praise God, we can have, uh, and God has called us to a community, the body of Christ, the church, right? who are to be our friends who walk with us when we are struggling. So when we struggle, uh, you may need solitude, but don't, don't have solitude that's isolated. Right? Have solitude that is with uh, that community who surround you and who walk with you in your struggles. Second thing Jesus does is he seeks the Father. Going a little farther, he a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Uh, Jesus falls on his face, a picture of really his desperation, his helplessness, uh, his uh, really just being in a place of huge crisis. And, and he says these simple words, My Father. Right? My Father. He goes, Jesus goes in prayer to the only one who can really help, and that is his heavenly Father, uh, who is the God of all creation, powerful, mighty, and sovereign. Right? But not only is he powerful, mighty, and sovereign, he is also a loving Father. And, and Father speaks of a relationship of commitment of a parent to their child a relationship of favor and of care, and ultimately of unfailing love and protection. Right? And if you're a parent, uh, you, know, you know something of this, right? We know that we would do anything to, to protect our children, to watch over them. Uh, father is ultimately a position of seeking the best for our children. <clears throat> now, I know that uh, some of you may have uh, grown up with fathers who were not that, right? And sometimes it's hard for us to really identify God as a father because our own father failed us so badly. And they were not those things to us, right? And so uh, we have to separate a little bit our earthly fathers from God. But God is the perfect ideal of all that a father should should be. Of all that a father should be. And a father is ultimately one who has your very best in mind and who will do anything in his power uh, to bring about that best. Right? As a parent, don't we want that for our kids? Right? We want the very best for them. And really, we would do anything as parents, as loving Christian parents, we would do anything. Like if our child had a disease and, and we had to you know, give up our, our very heart in a, in a heart transplant, we would do that, right? We would sacrifice our very life for our kids. Because we want the very best for them, right? And that's what that's what God is as a father, right? Jesus goes to his father who knows, uh, loves him, 
and cares deeply about him. He knows that to his father he is a dearly loved son. And he goes to him, uh, whose unfailing love is unconditional and unchanging. Uh, when we're struggling with fear and sorrow and depression and anxiety that overwhelms us, the first thing you need to do is you need to go to your Heavenly Father. Right? Go to Him in prayer. Press into Him in prayer. Uh, and, 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 and not just go to Him, but go to Him with the understanding that He is this Father who wants the very best for you. Right? Who is looking after you, who, who loves you with an unconditional, unending love. A love that's beyond what you can know or imagine. Right? That's the first step. Jesus goes to his Father. The second thing Jesus does uh, is he complains to God. Right? He complains to his Father. Um, I love that. right? Because uh, a lot of us don't really think we have permission to do that. Right? Like we think, well, God's my loving Father and he's holy and he's, he's in heaven. And when I go to him, I've got to be on my best behavior. Right? Uh, but if you know anything about a child, parent-child relationship, because that's one of the great joys of a child. A child puts on no pretending with his parents, right? Like your kid's never as worse as they're ever going to get, except for when they're with you, right? And you're like, well, when you're at school, you're not like this. Why are you nice to your teacher? And you're terrible to me. Well, there's some freedom, right, in, in, in being a child, right? To be free, to, to be honest, to be real. You know you can't hide things from your parents, but kids, if you haven't figured that one out, learn that one. You, you cannot hide things from your parents. They have radar. They just know, right? And certainly God knows. <clears throat> right? He knows our feelings and our struggles. And we think that if we complain to everybody else, but then when we go to God, we pretend that, that that's okay. I'm telling you, God already knows. He saw it, right? He knows everything. If you have a grumbling, complaining heart, right, you might as well not hide it from him because he knows. And you know what? Not only does he know, but he invites it. He welcomes it. And so Jesus goes to the Father and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Like if there's any other way, God, please, I, I don't want to go there. Like isn't there some other option? <clears throat> right? Uh, Jesus uh, lays it out before the Father what he's thinking and feeling. <clears throat> Uh, is it really okay to complain to God? Well, it's interesting. Uh, a, a significant chunk of the Psalms are called complaint Psalms because they are just that very thing. It is, it is the psalmist going to God and complaining to God about the unfairness of a situation or the fact that God doesn't seem to be taking care of him or he's facing these obstacles that seem Im- impossible. <coughs> Um, and Jesus does just that, right? Uh, take the book of Job. <laughs> right? The whole book of Job, if you haven't read it lately, is basically a book of complaints. And specifically, complaints about, from Job about God. Right? <clears throat> and the amazing thing is that God does not zap Job. But actually, God meets Job as he does with many of those uh, complaint psalms, right? And the truth is that God invites us and welcomes us to come to him honestly pouring out our heart. Right? And, and there really is no better medicine 
when we are struggling than to go to God and to just be brutally honest with him about our heart, about where we are, about why we don't like it, about what we are struggling with. And, and Jesus does that. And you know, it says here that uh, our, our, our synopsis, what we get is a synopsis of Jesus' prayer, right? We understand that. Jesus' prayer was, was a lot longer than one sentence. We know that because he goes to Peter and he says, couldn't you watch with me for one hour? I don't know that, God, that Jesus had a stopwatch either and that the hour is like an exact 60 minutes. But it was a, it was a period of time, a good chunk of time. And, and so Jesus is, 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 is laboring in prayer, wrestling with God. But this is the heart of it. This is the content of it. And he's wrestling with God. There must be some other way. right? There must be some other option. Is the cross really the only way? And he's super honest uh, with with God. Um, but then we come to the third step. Okay, um, he's complaining. He's being honest about feelings, about what he doesn't like, about how unfair it is. Um, we we can do those things, right? Maybe we even go to God and talk about how we don't feel He loves us or even cares about us. Right? We can go to those things. Um, but in the end, uh, there's only one thing that really matters. And so while Jesus pours out his heart and he's honest, uh, he, he turns a corner right, in his prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Okay, that's a super important point, right? And this is really what it comes down to. Uh, in all of our complaining and in all of our venting with God, in the end we must come to one, one point of discussion with God. One point of labor and wrestle in our heart and mind. And the, and the wrestling is this. Is God good? And is his plan the best? Is God good? And is his plan really the best? We need to answer that question, right? When we're struggling with grief and hardship and heartache, we've got to come to grips with the answer to that question. Uh, and Jesus wrestles with it, right? And in the end, he, he answers that question this way. Yes, God is good. His plan is the best. And in fact, his plan is better than my plan, my thoughts, what I think would be the right way. I trust in his Good plan. <clears throat> right? He is Almighty God. He is a loving Father. And His purpose and plan is the best possible option. Um, how do we know it was the best possible option, right? Uh, Jesus asked God, um, if it's possible, right, take this cup from me. Well, what, what did Jesus mean by what was possible? What was in the scope and range of what was possible? Is he saying here, is it possible for me not to die? Well, certainly that was possible. <clears throat> Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. It was very possible that he could walk away. But really, that's not what Jesus was probably praying. Um, Jesus was not selfish like we are. I would be praying that because I would be caring only about myself. But I think there's more to Jesus' question here than just, is it possible for me to not die? Oh, yeah, sure it's possible. Uh, God could have rescued him right in that moment and taking him, taking him back. Right? 
But really what Jesus is asking here is, is it possible for God's redemptive plan to be accomplished some other way? Right? Like he knows that his mission is to pay the wages of sin, and he's saying, God, is it possible that there's a plan B? Like, is it possible there's another way to redeem lost humanity apart from the cross? Well, of course, we know the answer, and the answer God gave him is no. Right? This was the only way. Right? And Jesus uh, walks into it, and he knows that God's plan is the best. And the only possible option to save sinners, to pay the wages of sin. Um, You know, Satan screams in our ear uh, when we ask that question, is God good and is his plan the best? Know that Satan is going to be screaming in your ear, no, God is not good. No, God's plan is not the best. Look at what God's doing to you. Look at how you are suffering. Look at how hard this is. Look at how unfair it is. If God really loved you, right, it would be different. He would be taking care of you. God is ignoring you. Right? Have you ever heard those voices? Right? Satan loves to scream those accusations. Right? He's a great accuser. And not only does he accuse us, but he accuses God. Right? God's not interesting. And that was uh, like Adam and Eve in another garden a long time earlier where Satan says, look, God's not really after. He's holding out on you. He's holding back from you the best things because God's not really all that good and his plan is not the best. And in and, and, and every struggle we ever come down to, it really does come down to answering that one question. Is God good? And is his plan for me the best? Can I trust him that he is a loving father and he wants the very best for me? Uh, Jesus anchors himself with this great truth. He wrestles with his own feelings. He wrestles with these temptations. But in the end, he comes back to this reality. No, God is good. He's infinitely wise. And his plan is perfect. And I can trust it. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Right? He's willing to set aside his own, his own thoughts and ideas and submit fully and commit to fully the Father's plan. Um, so the problem is, though, with this is... Um, was, was, was it really, uh, you know, did Jesus, I mean, did God the Father really have Jesus' best in mind? Right? Well, it would appear not, right? Like, like, was the Father really watching out for Jesus? Was the Father really taking care of him? Uh, it, would, it would seem not, right? We'll get back to that. Hold that question, that thought for just one second. Um. Last step, uh, verse 42, again, for a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Last step, repeat as needed. <laughs> right? Repeat. 
And it's, it's, it's important to see that with Jesus, he wrestled through this and he came to this point of, of, of committing to God's will. But in the distance between getting up from praying and checking on his sleeping disciples, it was gone, right? And, and, and those struggles came back up. So he goes back. He goes through the process again. Second time he gets up and the disciples are still sleeping. And maybe Satan started yelling at him, See, even your best friends think you're worthless. Even your best friends don't think you're worth the time and effort to stay awake. See what a loser you are. See, God doesn't care for you. And again, Jesus goes back to that place. Father, you know, this is my struggle. But not my will, yours be, yours be done. For us, it may be a daily or even hourly or moment by moment wrestling with God. But repeat over and over, right? Don't give up until uh, God overcomes. And we know that uh, for Jesus, he did overcome because uh, in the end, uh, he, he says, rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It doesn't mean going away. He said, he means going to meet Let's go to meet it, right? The time is here. I am ready. I am committed and surrendered to my Father's will. Let's go, right? Um, those are great um, examples for us to follow, right? But I want to end with, with uh, just one more thought. And that, that's not just how he is, Jesus was an example for us to follow, not just how we can deal with our own crisis and our own struggles by seeing his example. But, but really to go one step further and, and really stand amazed at what Jesus did for us. Right? To, to see Jesus just one last time in the garden wrestling uh, for us. Right? And back to that question, was, was God's plan really the best for Jesus? In the short run, no. Right? In the short run, God would not deliver Jesus. And God's plan for Jesus was destruction, uh, was to uh, obliterate his life on the cross and to place on him the judgment for sin, to experience the fullness of God's wrath and judgment. Of course, in the long run, it was good because he rose again and Jesus is exalted as the great hero who took our sin. Right? But in the short run... Um, you would say if the father cared only for his dearly loved son, he would have called him home that instant and skipped the cross. Right? If he really just cared for his son. But of course, the amazing reality in this whole story is that God the Father in his goodness and in his good plan wasn't thinking only of Jesus. and wasn't thinking only of himself. Ultimately, he was thinking of you and me. Right? He was thinking of us. And his best plan wasn't his best plan for himself, not his best plan for Jesus, but Jesus went to the cross because it was God's best plan for us. That he would save us. He would redeem us. He would deliver us from the wages of sin by taking them on himself. Uh, It was absolutely the best and only plan for sinful humanity. It was our only hope right, that Jesus died in our place. Um, so we can look back at the cross as an example, but even more to just look at awe 
in awe and wonder at what Jesus has done for us. Right? To, to, to stand amazed at, at he who loved himself, loved us and gave himself up for us. He who loved us and gave himself up for us. And as we think about that, this one who gave himself, I want to just close by reading some passages that highlight what Jesus did for us. And then we're going to come and we're going to worship. And, and just to really stand amazed at the cross, stand in awe and wonder at what Jesus did for us. So let me just read these as we, as we, as we close. Hebrews 2.9 But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2.14 and 15 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he that is God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And finally, Isaiah 53, 3-7. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened eyes. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.